everyone. Welcome to Manufacturing Hub. This is the extra spooky edition um, here about a week before Halloween. Now, I had to convince Vlad that we should run the spooky theme design because next week when we see everyone, it will be when everyone is in that sugar coma post-Halloween candy. If, if that is what you're doing, whether you're out there trick-or-treating for yourself or maybe your children, or you've just bought a whole bunch of Halloween candy because everyone is clearancing out Halloween candy, that show will will be for you guys. But we are very excited to have Benson on. We will reintroduce Benson in just a moment as we go and conclude ICS Cybersecurity Month. We are super appreciative to Phoenix Contact for once again coming to sponsor uh, Cybersecurity Month and helping us honestly bring on a whole bunch of experts like Benson and everyone else that we've talked to already who know a whole lot more about ICS cybersecurity than, than Vlad and I honestly combined do. And we can get down to the bottom of, of a little bit of their knowledge on these topics. I wanna go ahead and welcome everyone here. If you guys are new here, welcome. If you've been here before, welcome back. If you guys are new here, we do our very best to have open, fun conversations with everyone. Please feel free to go ahead and use the chat active and often. We will do our best to go ahead and pull those questions in from the chat. I will also tell you guys that we've had some strange thing occurrences on LinkedIn the last couple of weeks where we don't get all of those chats coming in at, at, uh, live on the show. So if you guys have questions and we don't get to them or they're very technical questions and we can't take the break from the show to go ahead and answer those, we will do our very best to go ahead and answer those after the show. Without further ado, I'd like to officially welcome to everyone to Manufacturing Hub with me, Dave, and this guy down here, Vlad. This is a very special episode, 141. I actually had to double check last week because I, I thought I had the numbers off, but no, this is episode 141. Congratulations and welcome back, Benson. So I would like to introduce Benson Hoagland, Vice President of Opto22. And for our newer listeners, I will say if you want to go back almost 100 episodes, episode 43 i don't know how it's been so long between the episodes benson you can go check out the first episode with benson terrific thank you so much for joining us today and taking the time to talk to us about cybersecurity. before we get into that benson could you give us a little bit of a background again of yourself and ultimately how did you end up in industrial automation and what are you doing today yeah, sure. It goes back a while. <laughs> and we're talking late 80s as I got out of college. I actually started a computer business. So you could say that I'm essentially from the IT side of the world, although that was what, over 30 years ago. And as a result of that, uh, that business, I started working with some folks that were actually control systems engineers and ended up meeting one guy who was, we, we both had interests in music. And he said, Oh, you need to be more involved in industrial controls. I'm like, I'm a computer guy. And we got together and actually he was a distributor for Opto 22 products back. And this is like 1993, 1992, 1993. And I loved what I saw. It was very interesting. I was, this is pre-internet for anybody can even get their head around that. There was an internet, <laughs> it was ARPANET and everything else out there, but there wasn't really the internet that we, we know today. In fact, if you think about the first browser that came out, the Mosaic browser out of University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, that was 93. So I essentially left the computer business right before the explosion of the internet. Uh, bad timing, I should say. The, the point was, is that through, with computer technology combined with industrial controls types of technologies, and again, we're talking about early 90s here, those two things coming together is really what intrigued me. And me and this other guy went into business together, and then it wasn't long after that that I had an opportunity to come on to Opto. 
which was in 1995, so 28-ish years ago. And, and it's been a hell of a ride since. Really trying to bring the notion of IT technologies and how those can help us in industrial control type applications is really what drove me and uh, where I saw a lot of promise. And uh, indeed, it's been a challenging road. I'm not going to lie to you. When we, when we came out with, and this was part of my last episode as well, but in 1998, we came out with a product that was called Ethernet IO, Snap Ethernet IO. And at the time... Mm-hmm. There was no Ethernet on the plant floor. Indeed, most companies, and I'm talking some of the big companies that I probably don't need to name their names, all told us, we don't know what you guys are thinking down there in Temecula, California, where I'm from, north of San Diego. He says, but there's no chance that Ethernet will be ever on the plant floor. Well, we all know how that turned out. That's still the kind of concept, this notion of pulling TCP IP into industrial control networks, using a common physical medium, a, a common physical interface. Of course, I'm talking about 802.3, Ethernet ports, Cat5 or Cat Cat5 cabling, RJ45 connectors, all that stuff was very new to the plant floor. But the, the journey continues. We also at about the same time did OPC and we developed OPC with four other companies and looked at ways of how we could use these types of networks to move data around an organization and get it to the people who need it. So it's ironic that today we're talking about cybersecurity and, and it's a fascinating conversation. I'm sure we're going to have a lot of fun over the next hour or so. But the key thing is the notion of bringing TCP IP, Ethernet, and so on onto plant floors provided all kinds of benefits to us, but also brought those risks. Now we have to protect those systems. And uh, of course, that's what our topic for today, I, I believe, is going to be. If I can dig into that a little bit, Benson, why were the companies so hesitant to say that Ethernet would be the right protocol? I obviously know that it evolved over time and the speeds got better and ultimately it became more, I want to say, deterministic. But ultimately, were those the only factors or was there something else that they were worried about? No, this is my opinion, but my opinion Mm -hmm. is that... It was protecting the castle. It was the moat that that people were trying to protect. They had their own bus architectures, their own technologies, their own protocols. And that was essentially a lock-in. When we were developing Ethernet IO, the idea was to try to come to a common bus architecture, right? So here I'm talking about, of course, Cat5. And, And the idea is that from a software level, we can put whatever protocol we want over that. But let's all standardize on Ethernet. But a lot of these companies had major investments in their own bus architectures and made a handsome amount of money selling those uh, types of architectures into systems. So I think that it was, it was largely commercially driven. Yes. To your point, there were technical things that we had to overcome. When we came out with Ethernet IO, we were still talking about 10 megabit net- networks, generally not even connected to a switch, but connected to a hub. And when, without getting into the dirty details, you connect Ethernet to a hub, you have a, what's called a shared collision domain. Everybody who's on that hub can see everybody else's traffic and everything gets, can get cattywampus pretty fast, technical term. So the notion of the, or the advent of things like switches and then higher transmission speeds up to 100 megabit and gigabit speeds and so on started to mitigate some of the initial issues. But unless you took that first step, which we did in 98, which was, hey, this could work. Then people started to pile on. And and we've all experienced the benefits now. Even Modbus TCP didn't exist uh, in the form we know it today at the time we introduced that product. So we actually had to put our own protocol together based on the IEEE 
1394 Firewire protocol, which we still use today. It's It was just that early. But just like we're going to talk about in cybersecurity, sometimes you just have to take some of those first steps that put you on a path to hopefully a greater availability, higher performance, better safety, and just overall production improvements over time. And again, that notion of being able to share data in a meaningful way, but also in a secure fashion. And I guess speaking of those first steps when it comes to maybe cybersecurity, right? And I think that nowadays it's almost understood that there's ransomware attacks, there's different disruptions of facilities. What were maybe the earlier years where we saw those concerns, right? Ultimately, when the networks were completely separated, I would assume there was a lot less fear than there is today. But when were maybe like the first thoughts around cybersecurity taking place uh, from what you've seen? So yeah, you're correct that things like ransomware, malware, things like this, we're facing every day. And if you look at some of the more notable intrusions or attacks that have happened recently, they've actually happened that way. But let's not forget the the most, uh, I wouldn't say glorified, but one of the large uh, examples of a cyber attack was, of course, called Stuxnet. Had zero to do with Ethernet, with TCP IP, with malware. Its intrusion method was a USB key. So somebody literally walked in and connected uh, to the OT network, the USB key that had the malware on it. So what I'm getting at is that there's no single event or, or, or single attack vector that is suddenly making us all pay attention to cybersecurity. There's a lot of different attack vectors and it's understanding each of those and where those infiltration methods come in. That's what we have to address. Gotcha. But, but that was just to put a, still a, a time frame on that spec, spec mm-hmm. that was around what year was that? maybe introduced or mid 90s for us particularly. And we've seen it with our products, with other products as well. And I mentioned this last time that we got together. The issue that we tend to forget sometimes is that let's take a PLC or a drive that's ethernet enabled. The way that those things work is you have some piece of software or perhaps another system that's asking that PLC for some data or asking the drive for some data over whatever protocols over ethernet. And by virtue of that means that device needs to be listening. So it can accept the message to say, hey, what's your latest data? And it responds. And there indeed it becomes what's called a server. It's serving information to clients who are asking for it. And that is one of the huge, most massive attack vectors there is a server that's sitting, simply sitting there listening. And as more and more of these devices started getting put onto the plant floor, whether they were PLCs, drives, what doesn't really matter, the notion that it was a server was escaped the common thinking for most people. They didn't really look at it as a server, but indeed that's a big vulnerability. So that's where we started to see it right away. I've seen on some of your other cybersecurity episodes where they brought up things like Shodan, uh, Shodan.org, which is of course a tool, a free tool that you can go and see all the devices that are even worse, they're connected to the internet and they are a server and they have an access. It's a scary tool. It's a a very, and it was a wake up call, certainly for us in in terms of development of our products to say, hey, whoa, wait, hang on a second. Why are all these devices connected to the internet, but connected to the internet as a server, as something that's going to listen for traffic coming in from the internet to try to get data from it? So we saw a lot of that proliferation in the 90s. And initially when Ethernet IO or Ethernet drives or PLCs 
were put into plant floors, they were segmented, right? We're not, no, I'm not going to go that far. They were air gapped. They were disconnected. But once people started to see the value of being able to get information when they needed it, then it suddenly was like, oh, we should just connect this to the internet. Now we can share that data anywhere, but didn't put in some of those safeguards that are necessary, particularly today. I and I think me and Dave had that conversation, if I'm not mistaken, last week or the week prior to that. I still wonder if being air gapped is a viable strategy today, right? Because ultimately you want to be able to get that data, you want to be able to make decisions based on data. So I I personally don't see a world unless it's maybe some government super secret application where ultimately someone can go with a USB. But then again, that is still a flaw. Go with a USB, retrieve that data and then make a decision a week or a month later. But I, again, I wonder if you think that is still something that will be practiced or we should be really thinking a bit of a different architecture than air gapping our systems. Oh, I absolutely believe we should be looking at uh, other architectures uh, rather than air gap, because let's be clear, cybersecurity is it's a moving target, right? So uh, you're mm -hmm. looking for the, the path of least resist resistance in, in USB or maybe a, an infected laptop ending up on the OT network will introduce uh, those kinds of threats onto those networks. But there's a lot of tools available today that help us not maybe move away from an air gap system, but provide the level of security in a true effective manner. You can talk about air gap, but again, there's too many vulnerabilities there as well. That's not to say that there are certainly environments where air gap is absolutely the only way that it can be done for a number of reasons. Nuclear reactors, we do a lot of business with Idaho National Labs that we're working on right now on a system where it absolutely has to be air gapped. And that's always informed us as well in terms of how we develop our products is that we wanna provide this data democratization and cybersecurity tools. But at the end of the day, the device will likely be put into an air gap system. So it needs to be 100% functional without any connection to any other network. Those are always, I wouldn't call trade-offs, but those are the kinds of things that we have to consider is recognizing if you're gonna have a control system, it needs to work in both environments, so. Dave, what are your thoughts? Absolutely. So I, I was laughing a bit to myself on the same topic, Benson, when, when you were saying how you guys were working on Ethernet IP in the, the early to mid 90s and uh, how everyone was saying no one will ever put Ethernet IP on the plant floor. And I'm thinking over here, at least we've gotten past the point in which most people are trying to say, hey, my cybersecurity is the fact that we're just going to go air gap everything. Right. right. And right. I would say outside of those kind of very particular nuclear or, or very particular laboratory style environments mm -hmm. of all of the people that I've ever gone to see that say, hey, all of my air gap, all, all of my systems are air gap. I think I can count on one finger the number of systems that actually were air gap, right? Precisely. Uh, everyone would be surprised or maybe not surprised how everything is air gapped until we've got to go through some sort of update. And then, it's, oh, yes, we just have to go ping this. And we can just go ahead and go download everything um, on that side. So yeah, I completely agree. I think it's very interesting. And one of the other themes and topics that, that we had are, are very much to the, the, the USB or the go find the easiest way to get on the network is that the vast majority of the industrial companies, the manufacturing companies that we work with, the easiest way to go attack those organizations is through the IT or enterprise side. And that most of the time, if you're going to go lockdown servers and there is a ransomware, there is some other hack or attack, 
if we have closed down the IT sides, even if in theory the OT systems could run, as we saw with Colonial Pipeline, they're not running because all of the other systems surrounding it are compromised. So it doesn't matter what we could do if we could go make or move more oil. It doesn't particularly matter because we can't go sell the oil. We can't go that's pump exactly the oil right. out. We can't do anything in particular with it. Yeah. And so I think that that's interesting. But and I feel like there there is a large but. It doesn't mean that we should say, hey, because of this, we can go do whatever we'd like with our cybersecurity hygiene, right? Mm -hmm. We can just go have admin password be all of our, oh our logins. We never have to worry about changing anything. And, and so from my side, I, and I think it was Opto and you guys, five or six years ago, you came out with basically, hey, we're going to go send you a new device. The first thing you have to do is you have to set a security login name mm -hmm. and password. Now, can't tell you, we won't talk about what percentage of the people choose admin and password, but <laughs> they have to go make the, the conscious decision of going through that. So I'd like to talk a little bit more on like the, the practical side. So fr from your perspective, if someone is coming to you saying, hey, we know that we need to get better on the practical OT cybersecurity side, but we don't have a ton of money and none of us have a ton of time because we're right. always going to put out a thousand other fires. What are the general starting steps that you have conversations about? And so, yeah, it's a great point. And that's part of the notion of cutting through the noise. In preparation for this podcast, I was like, you know what? I'm going to bone up on a couple of things that have been happening recently. And oh my gosh, what a rabbit hole that was. The the noise level <laughs> is is so high and, and there's so much going on. And that's at a number of different levels. It could be from a, a vendor level like Opto. It could be from an agency level. It could be from a from a national level. Look at all the stuff that the EU is doing right now with their Cybersecurity Resiliency Act and so on. So it's really easy to get just so bogged down that all you can feel like you can do is just step away and say, I can't, I can't tackle this. But indeed, there are some simple things that you can do. And some of them are, you've heard a dozens of times, make sure you have decent usernames and passwords. Oh. We can say that till we're blue in the face, but the likelihood is that it's still happening. You wouldn't believe how often it happens. And it's just it's just password, username and password hygiene. And, and that comes down to education. And, and uh, one of the things, and uh, I can get back to this later, but it's really got to come from leadership, right? So there's got to be some, some tools, some guidelines that people can under, clearly understand to address things like, uh, again, user pass hygiene. But there's other elements, I think, that are really important. And that, of course, is this notion of seg network segmentation. If you can segment these networks from each other, I'm not talking about air gapping, which is a form of segmentation, if you want to put it in that bucket. But the notion of being able to segment these networks is absolutely critical. And the tools to do so are available, widely available. The sponsor for this podcast is Phoenix Contact and their MGuard products, or the, the technology that we've embedded into our own Epic controllers and Rio has done the same, is, is that idea that let's start first with being able to segment and firewall off these types of devices and, and protect them from the IT networks. It's not, you know, again, just like AirGap doesn't necessarily solve your problems, there's always going to be an attack vector of some sort, the same thing will happen to some degree, but it's some of those first steps that you can start quickly and simply. And don't boil the ocean here. Pick one of the most, I wouldn't say susceptible, but one of the most critical processes in your environment. 
One that, you know, getting back to Idaho National Labs, they've, and this was mentioned on one of your other podcasts too, is that take it from an adversity effect. Try to identify what one of your critical applications are and try to attack it yourself. You'll, you would be amazed how much you can learn by just doing that. Right. And, and that's the, the idea of segmentation, the idea of you know, password hygiene. And it also helps you identify what I think is that third important part. And again, a term used a lot is the notion of risk assessment, being able to take inventory of, of your devices that are connected to connected to some network, whether it's the OT network, the IT network, it doesn't really matter. But getting that assessment of what kinds of devices that could be vulnerable and also, again, what devices that are interdependent on that particular device. So you grab a PLC from a critical process. Well, what other systems that have a dependency on that PLC are also uh, subject to attack? And being able to take it from that approach is just some of the very early things uh, that I think you can do. And doesn't it doesn't require you pulling out your checkbook. It doesn't require you having to go find a PO and develop an ROI case for this, because we all know that even with cybersecurity, developing an ROI is, it's basically not ROI, it's an insurance policy to some degree. Mm -hmm. And so those are those can be challenging to get funding for. But there's, again, there's so many things that you can start off with simple steps uh, that you can start with to, to at least, it, it starts you on the journey. One of my favorite guys on LinkedIn is, he's in the OT networking space. His name is Josh Varghese. I think you guys have probably seen some of his work, but Boy, he's a tremendous OT networking expert. And I love what he says. And he says, take one step forward. Just take that first step. And that's going to lead to the next step and to the next step. And again, don't, don't take this notion, I got to boil the ocean or I got to buy expensive software uh, for monitoring. Not to say that you wouldn't want to do that ultimately, but there's a lot of different, you know, a lot of smaller steps you can take that puts you in a position to understand you know, what things you need to pay attention to, and you can do so with literally almost no investment uh, and, and start that process. And that's that process, that starting that process is part of a learning process. There's no destination in cybersecurity. That's a fallacy. There is no destination. It's a continuing process. Cybersecurity is not a product, as Bruce Schneier, I think, said. It's a process and, and it's never ending. Let's be honest, there's always going to be new attack vectors. There's always going to be new ways to infiltrate networks. The prize is too big that you, you know, you're, you're always going to be chasing the ghost. But you can put some pragmatic pieces in place that helps minimize the, those attack vectors and increase your cybersecurity posture. If I can follow up on, on that, that, Benson, and I really like the point of inventorying your assets first, right? And I'm not as familiar with the tools that make that easier. I don't know if you have any like general recommendations, but I feel that it should be possible to, let's say, scan a network and be able to see ultimately, I want to say something a bit more refined than an IP scanner, right? right. And then see, do we have those, like what kind of passwords have been set or maybe none have been set on those devices and then maybe they need more attention. Are there any tools that someone can at the very least, look into to see if they would be applicable for their scenario? Yeah, there's a lot of tools in the IT space. What we lack are those kinds of tools on the in the OT space. I wouldn't say lack them. They're just not as familiar. Mm -hmm. and, and that's part of the problem we have in the OT space is a lot of these tools and uh, to address cybersecurity at a number of different levels are generally come from the IT space. And therefore, mm -hmm. because they come from that domain, it generally requires some level of IT domain expertise. 
And not all of us in OT have that. As I said last time we got together, that education, that learning about networking at its, at its very va basic fundamental levels, Ethernet, TCP IP, and so on, th those, are, those are very critical uh, on that path. So getting back to your question, those kinds of tools, there's, there's some net tools out there that help you with that. Will they tell you whether or not there's a username and password? Maybe not, but they will tell you if no authentication exists, right? That's a big problem. You wouldn't, you'd be shocked at how many devices that are in plants today. They've been there for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, perhaps. They were developed and instituted into an application way before we were talking about uh, cybersecurity. So they have no authentication. Again, that notion of a PLC just being a server and listening to anybody who wants its data, right? Mm -hmm. There's no encryption. And encryption, a lot of people say, what is encryption? Encryption really ad addresses that notion of the man in the middle attack. We can talk about more about that later. But those are two fundamental pieces of technology that I think are important to get onto the plant floor. Now, the reality is you're not going to rip out a Brownfield PLC because it doesn't have authentication and right. encryption, mm -hmm. right? So that's when you, you start to consider these tools, again, that are readily available uh, to put in front of those networks to protect them. It's so what we tried to do with the opto gear. Uh, of course, as I said, Phoenix uh, does this as, as well with their M guards. And there's plenty of other systems out there that do this. But and, and that's not a huge lift either. But that comes back to that notion of, of segmenting. Yeah, I wish there were a lot better tools, OT tools. There's one guy I have a long relationship with. He used to actually run uh, the transparent factory for Schneider Electric way back in the 90s. And uh, he was also uh, a big proponent of Ethernet and TCP IP on the plant floor. His name is Mark Fondel. And uh, Mark did some really terrific work with a product he called IntraView. And I'm not sure it's still on the market today. It might be, but that was a really cool tool because it did what you're, what you're addressing. This notion of being able to scan all the devices on a given network and then visually represent that in some sort of a map. So we can start seeing what kind of tools are out or what kind of devices are out there and what ports they're listening on. That's another key aspect. Interesting. Yeah, and I guess, again, Absolutely. I don't know a lot about those tools. I think Dragos has some solution, but I've not uh, at least experimented with it like on my own to say for sure what they're able and not able to do. Because I think there's a lot of complexity in this in the industrial space, right? The networks might also be segmented via jumping through a PLC or jumping to a different like a control mm -hmm. net network or a Modbus mm -hmm. network, right? And so it's not as, I think, easy as on the IT side, even though it has its own challenges, but it's uh, it would be nice to have a tool like that. For sure. And there's one that comes to mind is IP scanner. You can throw that on a network and roll it out there, essentially try to ping and look for any responses that are coming back. Ping is obviously one of them, but there's a number of other methods to try to get, a again, a server or some device to respond. But again, if you run one of those tools and you get a hundred devices that are coming back with various ports that are open or that are responding to these requests, you've already identified the mm -hmm. biggest problem you have. There's too many devices yep. that are not segmented. And that's that there again comes back to that notion of let's do the assessment. Let's do that risk assessment, understand what devices we have in there, and then start to compartmentalize those as appropriately using these tools that you can do. So when you're running an IP scanner or some other tool, you're not going to get that hundreds of device results. You got to solve that problem first, because, again, you get 100 devices out there and suddenly you're overwhelmed all over again.
So identifying those critical machines, critical lines that under any circumstance, you don't want it to be attacked. Focus on those, learn that process through that given opportunity, that given application. And then that is going to help you as you start to spread that throughout the rest of your organization. Dave? Absolutely not. I would agree with that. And I have played around and worked on a couple of tools like that. I would completely agree. Like the OTIE style tools absolutely are coming from the IT based concepts. Mm -hmm. What I have found is that they are more expensive, right? And, and yeah. many times the fact that they're more expensive than free make them difficult to go, not necessarily show the value, but, but make it difficult to go get that purchase order in order to be able to go ahead and use it. And especially when we talk about cybersecurity, it becomes the concept of, hey, if it's cybersecurity on the OT floor, why are we spending 10 or 50 or $100,000 for this tool, right? It, it yeah. is a cost factor as opposed to, and that is the specific problem I've seen time and time again. And there are companies using and building these tools. And I think that we will only see more and more of them coming out. I, I will say before anyone what goes, up? take some of these uh, IT style tools to go scan your OT network, please don't go turn on active yeah. scanning because that will just overwhelm your entire OT network and it will shut your facility down. And then there will be like lots of long, hard conversations. Again, uh, I know people who have learned this lesson the hard way. Typically, you only have to learn it the hard way once until you <laughs> never do it again because it is a very bad conversation. And then a couple of notes um, on Benson's previous comments. You talked about penetration testing. Mm -hmm. I find the concept of penetration testing just both wild and exceptionally fascinating. And so we had Pascal Ackerman on episode 81. Uh, Pascal is focused on uh, penetration testing for a large part of his career. He's written a couple of the top books of OTICS cybersecurity in this space. Go ahead and check out episode 81 with him. And then Benson also mentioned Josh Verghese. Josh has been on in episode 59. We've been trying to get Josh back on to go talk about more because he had a bunch of great things to say. Uh, Josh and our calendars are very hard to go ahead and go reconnect. So at some point, we will add Josh to, to a second episode on here. Absolutely. Yeah. And the you demand know, so I, I for Josh's services right now are over the top. Everybody's the good news of you guys having these types of webinars, especially with a focus on cybersecurity, like you did last year, is it's bringing awareness to these issues, right? It's bringing some awareness to how we have to address this. And in, by and large, that's helped folks like Josh and others to focus on it. And there's many, you guys uh, like to use the term standing on the shoulder of giants. Josh and anybody else that's dealing with these uh, issues today are also standing on the shoulder of giants. And one guy that comes to mind is Eric Byers been around in the industry for decades and he's arguably the grandfather of ot cybersecurity. i used to work for tofino and i think he went to another larger company in between now he's with edolis but the point behind uh, eric is and guys like him is that we've been trying to tackle this for a very long time and uh, it's it's a challenge but we all learn from each other so it's that learning process it's just continuing to take the next step forward and figure out how to address these problems Absolutely. No, I, I would completely agree with that. I'll make the comment. I have seen the, basically the same thing that happened the last time we had Benson on has happened. Uh, you are so popular, Benson. You are apparently crashing um, our, our LinkedIn event. We, we cannot see um, most of the comments on, on our side, but we've got Ryan and, and Renee um, arguing as to which NCIS 
esque show your headshot would <laughs> would appropriately fit in. I don't know. I, I, I think no there's the opportunity for NCIS Temecula. Um, right. I, I feel yeah. like Temecula is large enough, and everyone knows that Benson has at least I don't know thirty or forty extra hours a week of his time to go star as an NCIS star. Yeah, um, with that, that. so right. I will say absolutely. So if you guys are still watching on, on the LinkedIn side. Please go ahead and, and bear with us. Vlad has gone and thrown a comment uh, to the YouTube channel if you guys want to go ahead and watch there. Again, we'll have to figure out something, Benson, because you just continue to absolutely destroy our LinkedIn live events every time you come on. What I would like to do is I would like to go and have that conversation about the man in the middle attack, right? Mm -hmm. You had mentioned that. Can, can you maybe describe what that is as an overview for our listeners, please? Yeah, probably the easiest way to understand this and is connecting on the internet, okay? So we all know that we use Google, right? So we connect to google.com, we put in our search term and we expect some results. And even Google themselves have realized that notion of making a connection to a Google server there's a plenty of people who can see that kind of transmission go over the wire. So whatever wire that is, wireless wire, doesn't really matter. But that communication method, people can see that if you're, you're sending that over a network. And so the idea was, how do we make sure that nobody can see that? Nobody can sniff that traffic. And there's plenty of tools for sniffing traffic on a network. And we all know about the former Ethereal product. Josh's favorite. Yeah. Boy, you'd be shocked at how much you see all the frames, you see everything. Uh, and so the idea behind the man in the middle attack was just that if I'm making a connection again to a server and I'm not at the, not encrypted, never mind authentication, because that's a different step. But that first process of making an encrypted connection to a server does protect anybody from coming in to see what's being transmitted. So Google themselves on Google.com, you can't go to Google today and not have an established HTTP, HTTPS connection. And the S on the end of HTTP is security, which is encryption. So in fact, I'm gonna go, over the last year, as, as soon as you update your Google Chrome, and you probably already have, but if you have, if you try to hit an HTTP server, meaning no security, Google will not will automatically move that to HTTPS. And if HTTPS services aren't available on that server, you go nowhere. It's so there's a there's plenty of happening in yeah, commercial space, the IT space, and so on to ensure that you have some level of encryption to avoid that man in the middle attack. Classic example: I log into my bank. This is years ago. All banks now are HTTPS. Mm -hmm. I could log into my bank. I'm sending my username and my password over an unencrypted channel. Anybody can see that. I don't want to say anybody, but anybody with means mm -hmm. and desire can see that information and suddenly you're exposed. So that's essentially the notion of encryption in the man in the middle tech is to have that methodology. And it's well known, it's TLS encryption, it used to be called SSL, they're essentially, they're, they're close, but TLS SSL uh, encryption is, should be on any device that is ever acting like a server, including a PLC, including a drive, et cetera. And if they don't, segment it get it on its own network and have some device in the upstream that will facilitate the, the separating of those networks. And it's probably important to talk, if I can, quickly about segmentation, this notion of separating networks. There's really two ways that's done. Number one is physical, and by there you're almost getting to the point of air gap to some degree, and then the other is logical. 
a physical connection is two separate interfaces that are not electrically connected together, okay? A, a logical network uses such tools as VLANs. You guys probably heard that term, that use VLANs mm -hmm. to logically separate networks. Both have their advantages and disadvantages, but in, in reality, you could probably better define it as segmented networks, which are, of course, physical and logical perhaps, but most of the time it's logical, or seg seg segregated networks. Uh, that's definitely at a physical level. So again, a couple of things to keep in mind when you're saying, yep, I'm going to segment my network. Okay, how are you going to do that? You can do that as a, at a physical mm -hmm. level or at a logical level. Let me ask you a couple of questions on uh, those points, Benson. So first one on the encryption side, um, I guess in the current OT space, if I was to walk onto the plant floor and mm -hmm. try to, I guess, capture the traffic with Wireshark, how yeah. much of it is really encrypted, number one, which I, I think not a whole lot. You're but then right. the question is, which, or I guess like how many devices actually have that capability, which I also think not a whole lot, but I guess I'm curious Ooh. what your thoughts are. Yeah, they don't. It, TLS and SSL encryption has been around for yeah you know, a, a long time. I hate to put a, a number on it, but a very long time. But the cost of putting that on a piece of hardware is measurable, that it's not cheap. Because once you have encryption, and you should, then you're also dealing with stuff called certificate management. Certificates are what are used, this PKS certificate method that actually creates the tunnel. So now again, oh my gosh, not gonna worry about certificates and that's in the IT domain. Why, oh my gosh, open SSL tools and all kinds of you know, verbiage and technology that the OT folks just don't understand. That's what we try to do. We try, I know Phoenix does this as well and others where we try to put some of those tools for uh, creating encrypted connections right on the OT devices. But that doesn't answer your question. Nobody's going to just, again, rip out existing PLCs or so on to uh, provide this kind of level of encryption. So that's when you go the layer above those unsecure, unauthenticated, and unencrypted connections, provide that encryption layer, that authentication layer, and the segmentation. But so you could, in theory, and going back to maybe your point of like VLANs on a switch, that is a standard feature, right? So once it's your PLC hits the switch, then you could set up authentication and I guess encryption, right? That would only be at the switch. It doesn't necessarily give you encryption down on the PLC. So because PLC is not encrypted, all the VLAN is doing is saying that on that particular PLC connected to that port on a managed switch is in its own domain. So it's segmented from other devices, but it doesn't add encryption or authentication or anything like that. However, there are tools available, both from Opto, I, I'm sure Phoenix does the same thing, that provides an interface at that segmentation level. And that interface may include technology like VPN. So I can now access that device via VPN, and in this case, the device itself, and I'll use the Groove Epic as, a, as an example because obviously I'm familiar with that. But that device <laughs> provides segmentation, encryption, authentication, yada, yada, yada. But it can also provide, it's included with the, with the device, an open VPN client acting as a host. And what that means is it connects to a VPN server. Now I can have authenticated, encrypted connections from client, say a computer, a laptop, or whatever. I can connect to the VPN server, and I've already created that encrypted, authenticated tunnel. And then that gives me access to the device that is a, a VPN host, and now I can access the system. But I've done all that over an encrypted channel. 
right? So now I can put, say, a PLC on the back end of that device and potentially have a what's called a conduit. And now I'll be using IC 62443 terms, but zoning and conduits, right? Zoning is the notion of segmenting. Conduits are creating very specific rules for being able to access a device that is on the other side of a segmented network, particularly those that are physically segmented. And I'll make the comment that's the exact setup I have right here over my shoulder, right? Because ultimately mm -hmm. I can connect from the internet to that Opto 22. And then on the private network, I have all the PLCs sitting behind me, which ultimately is on the other port of that Opto. So it is segmented in the way that that's you exactly explain. right. Yeah, you're using um, it the right way. It was intended. <laughs> exactly. Benson, as a follow-up and maybe less of a technological question, but more of like a cultural and I want to say organizational question, right? Because I think that, as you've mentioned, a lot of these tools and a lot of this knowledge is predominantly on the IT side. Mm -hmm. So I believe that we simply, I rarely see an organization higher at the plant level, an engineer that would be, let's call it working on those networks and ultimately seg segmenting and taking care of the certificates as part of the OT team, right? Mm -hmm. So would you expect, I guess, the OT team just pass that on to the IT, right? So we're going to ultimately plug in all of our PLCs into whatever switch you need. And then IT is going to be ultimately responsible for making sure of that. Or do you think that they should really look into hiring someone on the OT side that, also, that is almost full-time, right, at this point because of the growth of the architectures? Absolutely the latter. And rather than the former and nothing against IT guys, hey, it used to be one. But the reality is that cybersecurity to them is something very different than it is to cybersecurity folks in the OT space. They, they're operating under a different set of, of goals, a different set of guidelines uh, and, in, and a different set of threats. Uh, a lot of that is about confidentiality, about access on the IT side. So really the idea is if you can get somebody from OT that has some level of IT experience, and you know, here's a, a career tip for anybody, learn that stuff. It's again, readily available. There's so many resources to learn basic IT networking, uh, you know, basic networking uh, in the OT space. And what we've seen is more and more companies are recognizing the value of having somebody with those skills in the OT side. So they came from OT, they understand that, but being able to apply some of the principles from IT down on the OT side is where you're going to get that immediate payback. And that's where we, a good friend of mine who's also been on your show, Alan Ray. Alan Ray now works for, I think I can say the company works 3M. for 3M. Hey, there you go. I didn't have to say it. He works for 3M. I, I, I'm sorry, Alan. If it wasn't public, I apologize, Alan. No, I think it's public. But his, he works at 3M, but you know what he does? He's in the security side, OT security. So that's a company, 3M is an example, and there's many others that recognize the value and the benefit of having somebody with some deep OT experience that can start applying some of those IT principles where appropriate and best implemented at an OT level. And those are the ones that are gonna be on their path to success, which again, uh, bears repeating. If you're an OT guy, you're trying to get a, a handle on this, learn some of those IT networking basics, and, and some of them are very basic, learn that stuff and start that presents an amazing opportunity for you as you know, again for your career but also for the organization that you work with i would 
Definitely. Absolutely. I'm going to, I'm going to interrupt. I know Vlad's got a ton of questions. We need to take a, a bit of a break to thank some people before that. We've got a bit of housekeeping as mentioned, mentioned Alan Ray episode 46. Alan was one of those people that we would as would have literally something to go add, no matter what the theme <laughs> or topic of the week is. And, and I look forward to catching up with him on the show at some point after he has gotten his feet at his super exciting new position. But before we go, thank Phoenix Contact for sponsoring the show. I do want to say, if you guys haven't seen the announcements already, everyone here is going to be at SPS Nuremberg on November 14th, 15th, and 16th. Vlad and I with Manufacturing Hub are going to be in the Siemens booth, which is really the Siemens Hall. We're going to have a bunch of live shows. We're going to have a bunch of different things that everyone can go ahead and connect and watch live. If you want to wake up early in the morning on the East Coast or your insomniac a little bit on, on the West Coast time. And so if you guys want to go ahead and check that out, check that out. I know Benson is going to be there. Benson said with the inductive automation booth and with the Codasys booth. And so it, it'll be great. As I like to joke, I, I have seen more people on a different continent this year that I haven't seen in years than, than I think I've seen in the United States. So super par for the course uh, for me. And then I know Phoenix Contact is going to have a large booth in and of itself. And then hopefully Vlad and I will have a chance to go get in front of all of these different things. But speaking of Phoenix Contact, we want to first thank them for sponsoring this entire cybersecurity theme. And we want to congratulate them on making more than 100 years of operation. So Phoenix Contact, if you guys somehow don't know, produce future-oriented components, systems, and solutions for electrical controls, networking, and automation. And I feel like Benson set up this next section of the MGuard already, but one of the mainstays of Phoenix Contact MGuard family, models 2100 and 4300 get major upgrades, now with gigabit speeds. The flexible devices pro provide an accessible path for segmenting and securing your industrial network. The firewall, VPN, and NAT features ensure all of your networking needs are met. The products are in stock and certified to meet IEC 62443-4-1. Plus, the Phoenix Contact cybersecurity team also has a major upgrade announcement. They offer IEC 62443-2-4 certified services. These services include asset documentation, secure network architecture, as well as consultative advice on best practices for all of your systems. Again, we'd like to thank Phoenix Contact for sponsoring this theme, your continued support of the community, and congratulate you guys on 100 years, which is a, a, a huge number. Absolutely thank you guys for that. Benson, that was coming in. We, we had a question that I don't know if you're the right person to go answer, but I'm going to ask, touching upon ISA 62443, talking about the importance as they try to go to implement is that a question that we should ask you or is that a question that we should refer to perhaps one of our previous guests who i know work, work in that all the time yeah there's i'm not sure i'm much value i can add to it but i've been paying a lot of attention to 62443 and okay. and of course all the sub chapters uh, of that and in reality when we first came out with the epic and then the real products this is before really 62443 was essentially ratified it's been in process for some time and in the absence of a so-called standard, we had a lot of folks saying, if this new ISA standard comes out, can, can you do that? And to a certain degree, you can. But just like your last guest, was it Eric? No, not Wait. Eric. Yeah, thanks. Um, so no, it was last, Ryan. Last week yeah, Ryan Hartfield. Yes. I don't know if that was the last one, but it, the point is, that he, and he said it well, and that is, ISA, ISA 62443 is a framework. If, if you're looking for a product that is... I say 62443, a standard or what it's compliant. It, it, there's way more to it than just a product. 
it's a framework and it includes a lot of different aspects more way beyond just a product. It's how that product is built. There's a components about how the product is implemented in a particular architecture in your plant. There's, there's many elements to 62443. And while I applaud that effort and I do, the notion has already been somewhat seated in our industry that a product has got to have that badge on it. But that's impossible because there isn't any such real thing. It can help you address 62443 uh, in your organization. But by itself, by putting in a product that has a stamp on it that says 62443, suddenly you're compliant to the standard. It is not accurate. It's just not accurate. But it is a guideline. It is a framework for getting there. And there are many others out there. NIST is one. CS, CISA, I definitely recommend that as a resource for people to understand how to implement these technologies, cybersecurity principles. Same with the, the NL, things that they're doing there with, with cybersecurity as well. So again, a lot of resources, easy to fall down the rabbit hole and get confused. And, and I get it. But again, it comes down to some of those basics that you need to do. But that said, 6243 has, has done a very good job of trying to convey some of these somewhat complex topics, not as complex as, I, as many people believe, but those topics about segmentation, about encryption, about authentication, about all the things that we're talking about, and put it into terms that hopefully people can consume and put into practice. Absolutely. No, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. As you've mentioned, and as we've had a bunch of guests mentioned, 62443, as, as you guys probably rattling off a bunch of sections and subsections, is a, a lot, right? And when we had Grant and Vanderbreak on earlier at the beginning of this theme, last year we talked a lot about what he was doing in manufacturing, and he spent a bunch of time looking and moving into the energy sector. And so we got some... Yeah. Comparing contrast about manufacturing versus energy, and we got just the slightest bit into what hardening looks like and why things have to be hardened. So I certainly think that is the whole, all of the concepts are very good kind of in general concepts that all groups should be working towards. I will say, if you guys want to listen to Grant, Grant was episode 138, and Ryan, as mentioned, had mentioned, Benson had mentioned, that's a bit of a tongue twister there, it was episode 139. Benson, I want to ask you the open question, right? We, we talked about passwords. We talked about segmentation. Are there any other kind of major items that we should go talk through when we, we're looking to break through the noise and all of the ICS cybersecurity noise that we're hearing this month on the more practical levels? Yeah, I, th I do have uh, one idea, and it's one that we've discussed in the past, but it's worth uh, mentioning again, and that is the notion of how do you democratize data in a clamp down environment, right? So you've got segmentation in place. Perhaps you have encryption and authentication. And again, that's if you need to communicate to that device, a server, PLC, whatever the device is. But what if you flip that around on its head? What if you say instead of me as a PLC or some uh, device on the plant floor listening for traffic to, so I can respond to a given client, what if instead I simply publish my information. So now it's different. Now, instead of me waiting for requests to come in from who knows who, I instead take the data that I have and that I've identified as being public data or something I want to share with, with other systems, whether the other hardware systems, software systems, doesn't, cloud, doesn't matter. What if instead I start to publish that data and on an outbound basis? Now, why is that important? There's a, a number of reasons, but relative to cybersecurity, one is really important. If I can publish my data outbound, that means I can do without opening a firewall port, 
and we haven't even talked about firewalls yet, but uh, the notion of a firewall is, is simply to close off ports and, and essentially not be able to listen. Don't even respond to requests that come in on given ports on any kind of Ethernet device. But with outbound communications, I can do, I can go outbound and connect to some very secure server with authentication, with encryption, and publish my data for others to consume as they see fit. Now, of course, I'm talking about a technology that's near and dear to my heart, which is MQTT, but there are many other pub published subscribe ar architectures out there as well. But what people focus on too much with, say, MQTT or other PubSub architectures is that communication method in the first place. But if you take that aside for a second and look at the implications at a cybersecurity level, that's where things get really interesting. Because now I am able to share my data with other systems through various networks, but never uh, setting myself up for attack, never having to open a firewall port. Uh, even OPC is starting to do this as well. OPC UA. Mm -hmm. But they're essentially using the MQTT transport. And for those who don't not familiar with the term transport, HTTP is a transport, right? That's a method of connecting to somebody in uh, a server and sending data back and forth. Same as like when I'm going into my browser, I enter in something, uh, maybe I'm checking the stock of some, some company. And what comes back is obviously the value of that stock. But in many modern applications, you'll see the stock ticker continuously moving. That doesn't mean I'm making multiple requests per se, but I've created a connection outbound and I can see that data come back and it gets continually gets updated all over an encrypted and authenticated channel. It's exactly how MQTT works. So I can you know, start publishing my data or, or send data to a server and I persist that connection so I can actually get data back. If I want if I choose to do so, I can take a data diode method and say it's read only, or I can make it read white, read write, whatever I want to do. So to answer your, your long-winded answer to your question, Dave, th those are some of the other technologies outside of that notion of hardening and segmenting and encryption and authentication that are tools that are available to help us still gain the benefit of having these network systems. And that benefit, of course, is mm -hmm. acquiring data from them uh, and sharing that with other applications that can use it. That's where these PubSub architectures are really useful. Um, Benson, if I can shift us just a little bit, because I was very curious about this, I want to say business case surrounding mm -hmm. Bedrock, right? And mm -hmm. again, not talking about anything that's non-disclosable. And ultimately, I want to have the conversation in the general sense of the industry, because again, my experience has primarily been in very large plants. So I think that the approach of Bedrock would have been for different industries. But I wanted to get your perspective on ultimately the the value that they sought to provide through a very, I want to say, cybersecurity focused PLC and automation device. And I, again, I will make a comment that I think they were shut down for a reason that is very different from a technical one. Is there a space yeah. for another maybe PLC to come in and market themselves as we put cybersecurity like first? And maybe what does that imply ultimately from that OEM? Yeah, so let's take the first part of your question first, and that is the notion of what the Bedrock system was. Big fan. I know Albert. We've had a lot of great discussions. I really liked where they were, were uh, taking their technology, how they were addressing cybersecurity in a, in a, in a novel way. And, and indeed, there was some very specific aspects of the Bedrock system 
that did address cybersecurity, but not just at a cyber level, but at a physical level as well. When we talk about cybersecurity, mm -hmm. we're largely talking about the notion of protecting systems that are connected over some network or some other electronic or digital means. But the aspect of physical security is also something that's important, whether something's locked in a cabinet, for example, or if somebody were able to penetrate a cabinet and get in and tweak something on the firmware or on the IO cards or whatever, that's what Bedrock was looking to address. So they had a lot of DSPs, a lot of technology that was built into those systems to essentially eliminate the ability to tamper with the PLC itself and even the IO cards. And it was terrific technology. It really was. There was, they had it patented and it was great, but it was expensive, extremely expensive. Mm -hmm. And it was also very proprietary. So, although it used some methodologies that we're all aware of, things like certificates and, and signing hardware devices and so on, it was very difficult to penetrate in the OT market because of its cost and its complexity. And while, again, I, I thought they built uh, terrific products, I was, I was intrigued by what they were doing. And I was uh, a flag bearer for saying, hey, yeah, this is, yeah, they're a competitor. Same as Phoenix is a competitor. So something, but we're all trying to address this where, in my opinion, maybe the big guys aren't really addressing it as, as significantly. And that's, that to me is important. It's again, getting back to that notion of taking one step forward, right? Just keep making the steps forward. And the second part of your question is other PLC companies coming in and trying to address that. I would say that not necessarily at the notion of the backplane and the digital certificates that happen between an IO module and a backplane, things like that, again, very expensive, but again, trying to bring it up a level in that the device itself, the PLC itself does have a lot of those capabilities relative to, again, segmenting, encryption, authentication. Obviously the Office 22 products take that first and foremost. When we built Groove Epic, we started with a clean slate. And we said, this is how we want to do it. And we want cybersecurity to be first and foremost at a level that people will still buy the products. And that's a key consideration. We've been in this business for 50 years. We've made millions and hundreds of millions of products that are operating processes all over the world today. And we learn every time we do this. And when we came out with this one, this in the kind of environment we're living in right now, which of course is things like cyber attacks, you, you've got to put that, you got to bake it into the very core of what that, what that product or PLC or whatever it is, is designed to do. You got to bake it in. And so that's what we've done. Now we're not going, we didn't go quite as level to the bedrock because it was pretty clear that to put that kind of technology in, will a customer be willing to pay two, three, maybe four times the cost of a regular PLC to get that? And I just don't think the market was quite ready for that. That's my opinion. And, and I think it depends on the risk assessment, which is ultimately different from industry. Yes, to industry. absolutely. Yeah, I agree. And they had a focus on, they did a lot of water waste, water projects. They did some substation stuff. They did a lot in oil and gas. And in those cases, that could become critically important. If you've got a cabinet sitting out a hundred miles away from anything else, like a substation, like a, maybe a pump station or a oil derrick that now you've got to be very concerned about uh, physical security as well. And so in those types of applications, it, it could be warranted, but again, uh, you know, when you're dealing with those kinds of industries, they're looking at not one or two devices here and there, but a hundred 
or a thousand spread out through a, a geographical range. And that's where those costs can be almost insurmountable. And there are some other approaches you can take to address those issues. And uh, I think that what, what Bedrock tried to do is put it all together in, into one package. And again, great stuff. Just it was more than the market would bear in terms of cost. And just I so I, I <laughs> yeah, yeah, and again, that's I'm sure there's maybe like a case study or an article that I believe like I read that explained what truly happened. If someone's interested, we'll post a link in the show notes. But Benson, if, if I understood correctly, just so I'm curious, like on the technical side, they had encryption between the CPU and each of the IO blocks, which means that if I was to, let's say, tamper with the IO block, it would also detect that. Like oh, absolutely. Physical. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty between IO modules, between the CPU and some host, between the IO modules, the CPU and the backplane. And there was, there was a fair amount of technology in there. And, and like I said, it was great. I'm just not sure that it was in the realm of mass market penetration. And at the end of the day, you, as a vendor, we deal with the same thing. When we develop a new product and we put some technology into it, we always have to be mindful is... Will the customer be willing to pay for these features and these capabilities? And that's always a responsible for product strategy here at Opto. And that's one of the things that we deal with all the time. Hey, we can add this, but it's going to cost this much. And that cost pass on to the customer. Is the market ready for yep. that? And the beauty of what we've done and, and other companies have done this now more recently is we've employed some core technologies that help us address those. The Groove Epic and Groove Rio based mm -hmm. on the next operating system with real-time extensions. So it's so it's going to be industrial. It's You put it in hardened packaging, wide temperature range, all of the approvals necessary to exist on the plant floor or in a remotely geographically dispersed environment. Th those are all important. Uh, but ultimately, uh, us putting in that Linux OS gave us a lot of tools that we could incorporate into the system to address these things. Segmentation, encryption, and authentication, firewalls. All that stuff is part of that, that, that core operating system. And there's Linux servers. There's hundreds of millions of Linux servers all over the world. And, and why not take some of the advantages of that technology? Same thing we were doing with Ethernet. We couldn't solve, Opto couldn't solve the problem of determinism or 100 gigabit interfaces or switches or all the other things that are associated with Ethernet networking. But we didn't want to. We knew the industry was going to move forward. And, and as long as we're moving in step with them, we're going to be able to take advantage of all those technologies and put them into these systems. Same could be said for MQTT. One of the things we get often, which is not accurate, where they say, oh, MQTT is not secure. That's because the, secu the security mechanism for MQTT isn't inside MQTT. It leverages TLS and SSL and, and all these other technologies that millions of people are paying attention to. We just get to adopt that technology and put it into plant floor. Mm -hmm. that, that we think is a more meaningful path where again, in contrast to Bedrock, they said, nope, we'll design it from the ground up to be all of these things and the customers will hopefully pay for it. Yeah, that Absolutely. I think those those were a couple of great points. First, I'd like to go point out, I think that's a, a groove koozie that Benson is currently <laughs> drinking from that, that, that I really like. I, it, it took me it took me a couple of minutes to be able to read that. But first, I love the koozie Benson. And second, I completely agree. I, I think that as technologists, it's really easy to go build the best technology and to go own 
and build all of the parts of the technology as possible. And at some point, technologists have to go market and sell the solutions that they're going to build. And there are general buckets of what people have historically paid. And whatever you're doing has to be multiple times better in order for them to get out of that bucket or that comfort zone in order to in order to pay more for anything. If they've decided that a PLC is worth $1 and you're over here asking for $100 for something that does the same thing, it has a bunch of other stuff in it, it's going to be difficult in order to, to go down the process. Uh, it, it's going to be difficult to go down the process of convincing people who have historically paid the $1 for it. And remember when somebody's buying a PLC, they want to know how fast the scan time is. What's the IO count? What's What can I do with that PLC strictly from what the PLC is designed to do in the first place? So by adding on a fair amount of this cybersecurity features, it come at a cost. And for people who are procuring these devices to solve a given problem, cybersecurity may not be front of mind. So they're paying for something Absolutely. they don't think they need. I would argue that they probably did need it at some level, maybe not quite as the level that, that, that Bedrack offered, but uh, that it's, it is more front of mind now. Uh, we're having a, you know, don't want to sound like I'm shilling or anything, but we've had a lot of success with Groove Epic and Groove Rio. We have. And a large part of that is because of that cybersecurity posture that we're taking with these devices. And we believe it's critical and customers are using it, are doing, they're making a decision now to employ these types of devices because that cybersecurity element has been addressed without a big premium to what the PLC or gateway or HMI, whatever you want to call Epic, is meant to accomplish. So that's that, that balancing act. Provide those kind of features, not at a significant premium, and then they get the benefit of all that, but still get to get use the device for what its core intention was, to solve a problem, to automate a process, to gather data from the field, whatever it might be. Absolutely. I would say when I think of Opto, I think of two things, or maybe now three things because of the, the Groove Koozie. I think of, of you guys as very kind of cybersecurity conscious first, and I think of the comment that you made about testing to 200% um, on, on one of our earlier shows of how all of the, the relays or now solid state relays that was the bread and butter of Opto for the longest time. 100% of them are tested all the way to the top level of the temperature range and all the way to the bottom level of the temperature range. And to me, that is very much what I think of when I think of Opto. And I think that you guys are in an interesting place. I think that you guys are in an interesting place continuing to, to lead the way, as we've talked about on earlier episodes on a variety of different technologies. Benson, we could absolutely go talk for three more hours on this, but we want to be respectful of everyone's time, which is a newish thing comparative to the last time you were on, because I'm confident we talked for the better part of two hours. So I want to go ask you the, the questions that, that I go ask everyone uh, towards the end of the show. And as you and all of our longtime listeners know, to go put everyone on the spot. So I, I want to go ask you to go predict the future a little bit. So maybe what do you think the future of, of cybersecurity and, and the melding of technology is going to look like? Are we going to continue down the path of more cybersecure devices? What is that going to look like in the next two to five years? Absolutely. I think, and I can speak to what we're seeing relative to new products coming on the market. There is a, a renewed emphasis on, on getting these technologies put into these systems. And now it seems 10 years ago, it was hard to rationalize that. Uh, but given our current environment, 
it's clear that people are paying attention to that. So I think you're going to see more and more of those kinds of features finding their ways into a lot of other products. And I'm going to be honest, it's even like with our products, having all of these uh, capabilities from a cybersecurity perspective, it doesn't make it necessarily easier, right? So you still got to deal with certificates, you still got to deal with making those encrypted connections and so on. But that will get easier as well. Again, if it, it's not just the OT market that's focused on these technologies. I mean, we hear about segmentation, authentication, encryption, firewalls, but that's being done everywhere outside of OT, in the IT space in particular, but even on commercial devices, stuff that you're even putting in your home now, whether it's your Nest thermostat or whatever, there's a, a renewed focus on cybersecurity. So the beauty is that we can leverage that from all these much larger markets, bring that technology into the OT space and help people protect their systems. So in terms of the, the future, that's exactly where I believe not only Opto, Phoenix, and several other companies, they have that renewed focus. Make it, the challenge is always going to be, you got to make it easy enough to use for the traditional OT guy. You, and I use the term IT, OT tooling. In other words, what software, what interfaces, what methodologies are used to set up encryption, set up ne uh, network segment segmentation, set up user authentication, whether that's local or LDAP, both of which, of course, are supported on Groove Epic. You got to be able to provide those tools in a way that, that an OT person can understand them and implement them. If they're having to run across the hall to IT saying, I got no idea how, the, how this thing works, you're already dead in the water. So I think what you're going to see, again, a future prog prognostication, if that's a word, is that tooling will become a lot easier, a lot simpler. And that's what we're all working on, right? We know the technology exists. We have them embedded in the device. But if they're hard to use, nobody's going to use them. So it's really, how do we make that easier to use and get, to get deployed properly? So we do have a, a guide on our, on our website. We actually have a cybersecurity page uh, on our website that focuses on the notion of, of, of cybersecurity. And in that, we've uh, developed a document called uh, Cybersecurity Best uh, Guidelines and Practices. Uh, and again, this is a, just a, a, a white paper type, type document that says, covers everything we've been talking about, you know, VPNs, firewalls, segmentation, uh, encryption, authentication, and more. And sure, it's from an opto perspective, and of course, but at the, at the same time, the content in there, the, those these topics and why they're important in an OT environment are in that document. It's freely available. Uh, we get a lot of people that download it. Indeed, when we're working, I just had this happen yesterday, we had a, a big application we're working on with a big a bunch of OT guys. And I told them, I said, hey, listen, this is a great application. This, you guys are off to the races. This gonna, it's going to blow your mind. However, get IT involved now. Get them involved now mm -hmm. and, and grease the skids for when you're ready to go to implementation, because otherwise you're going to hit that wall. And as much as we love to talk about OTIT convergence and everybody getting along, and the reality is that's just not, not happening to the degree we all like it to happen. So that's one of the reasons we created this guide. We give it to our OT customers and we say, send this to your IT team. So they have a better understanding of how we're going to implement these technologies that they're already familiar with. They just need to know how mm -hmm. it's applied to an OT type of a system. And that's really helped a lot. As I said, if there's another word of advice, if you got a new project you're working on, get IT or get an OT guy with IT experience that can talk that same vernacular with IT to help 
glide that system through because I'm telling you, the, the IT guys, they're, you think we're been getting bombarded with ransomware, malware, cybersecurity issues at the OT level. You have no idea what these guys are dealing with. It's crazy. Colonial, name them all, the, the yeah. Florida plant, you know, all that stuff. Is, it, it's a challenge for them, for sure. Absolutely. No, I like the concept and the way you put the OT tool into a bunch of these new, new to OT, but, but very normalized concepts. So I, I like that very much. Uh, thank you for that, Benson. Next, we'd like to ask you for a book recommendation, please. Yes, this isn't new. This book was written in 1984, but the book is called The Goal. And again, it was, I'm trying to remember the name of the Elihu, a Dartlet, something like that. Uh, Ali. He goes by Ellie. Okay. Oh, maybe you know the guy, but I, that's the book I'm reading right now. So full disclosure, I haven't finished the book and it's interesting the way I, I happened upon it. My son just started engineering school this year. And this was a book that was, he's industrial systems engineering. So super proud, excited for him. He, as part of his curriculum, his first ISE class, he said, Hey dad, look, we're reading this book called the goal. And I was like, all right, that's uh, probably another textbook or something like that. And indeed it wasn't. And he says, no, I'm really enjoying it. It's written in a narrative style. And I was like, oh, I got to check it out. So I did. And boy, was I sucked in. And it's because it, it talks about goals and from a manufacturing perspective, told in again, a narrative novel style. And I think it's great. There's, it's about theory of constraints. It's a, it covers a lot of different areas, but because it's told in a narrative sense, it's a pretty easy read. But it was surprising to me that this was required reading for an intro to industrial systems engineering class. So that's the one I would recommend because it's a fast read. There's a lot of great information in there. So there's my book, Rico. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I, I think it's good. We've had it, as I mentioned, recommended a couple of times very early in the show, but I'm not sure in the last hundred or so episodes we've had it recommended. So, so thank you so much sure. for that, Benson. I, I will make the comment. This is what I told Benson as, as we were getting ready to go live. Oh, Huck. So Huck Bales, Huck is in the comments. I think Huck was actually the first person to recommend the goal. There you go. Huck, you'll have, yes, you'll have to tell me, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's correct, Huck, but you'll, you'll have to comment if you were the, the first person to do that. It I would like to go me. recommend Critical, yes, I'd like to go recommend Critical Chain if you guys like that same style of book, very systems engineering, written by the same people who, as I like to joke with Benson and all theory of constraints folks, are pretty good at a whole lot of things, but are absolutely terrible at writing titles for books. <laughs> you can judge the book by the cover. Just don't judge the book by the title because right. the title is, is not all that great. Um, but, but no, so thank you so much for that, Benson. Super happy to see Huck, Huck here in the comments. Hey. Next question I'd like to ask is, is <laughs> absolutely. Next question I'd like to ask is for some career advice. So certainly early, maybe middle, middle of career, what is the best advice you would go give someone? Yeah. So when I sprinkled uh, some of those concepts throughout this conversation today, but you know, for me that I tend to not focus too much on the management side. Opto is a clear example of a company that's not mired in levels of management. We're a very flag organization. And for that reason, I can't provide much in the, with regard to career advice in a management way. But to me, anything that's a career advice is all about learning. This landscape is changing every single day. If there's anything changing more rapidly, of course, it is cybersecurity. But indeed, there's so much out there and there's so many opportunities to, to just simply learn. If you're not learning every day, 
you're not going to get to where you want to be. That's the bottom line. And so in that mode of thinking, again, I believe that understanding networks, understanding TCPIP, understanding those, some of those core technologies, if you don't know them already, it's all over your home. If you think about your home and you've got a router in there and you've got computers or your TV or whatever connected to your network at home and you have internet access, you're using the same tools. You're using networking, you're using TCP IP addressing, you're using all the things that we've been talking about. Bone up on that is definitely what I would rec- recommend from a career advice perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I think the best. Absolutely. I think that's fantastic. And then the last question for you, Benson, is, is, is open to you. How can our listeners help you guys? Are you looking for new customers? Are you guys hiring? Are you looking to have interesting conversations? How can our listeners help you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. One of the things about the way that we operate is is enormous feedback from our customers. We're not an ivory tower. We're small enough to care, but big enough to matter. So, and that small enough to care, I think, is an important concept from an from an opto perspective. And that is, we take this kind of feedback and and build it into to products to help solve problems. Uh, we go through this exercise every time we have training here at Opto as well. We spend a lot of time on trying to understand what the applications are, what kind of things that uh, they'd like to be able to do but cannot today or it's not as simple as it needs to be. So that feedback mechanism is critically important to me and, and it helps. It really helps line me up for what we need to focus on moving ahead. So we always want new customers for sure. We've had a, a fair amount of success in that regard, but it's really that feedback. We tend to still be a company that is out in front. So we're going to be implementing technologies, trying to make them very applicable to the OT space and easy to use, but there's more to come. And that kind of feedback is probably the thing that if anybody who's listening says, hey, I've got an idea or hey, what about this? Drop me a line. I'd love to hear it. Absolutely. Benson, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, everyone, in the chat and the comments for hanging with us as LinkedIn exploded. But as I'm now seeing Huck's comments on LinkedIn, maybe LinkedIn is back. I will say if you guys have migrated from LinkedIn to YouTube and are on Manufacturing Hub YouTube, please go ahead and subscribe to that. If there is an issue with other feeds, we stream to YouTube, if only to make sure that we always have another second or third or seventh backup. Um, in perpetuity, because who would we be if we didn't have seven backups of of everything we did live? I want to thank all the folks at Phoenix Contact again for sponsoring this and helping us bring Cybersecurity Month to you guys. A reminder that if you are going to be at SPS Nuremberg, make sure to go check out Benson in the inductive booth and the the CODASYS booth and come visit Vlad and I in the Siemens Hall, which is the, it's about three quarters of the size of a normal trade show that one is going to go to in general. So we're super excited to do that. We're super excited to bring some live content to you guys next month. Beyond that, please feel free to go ahead and connect with Benson as well as Vlad and myself. Follow Manufacturing Hub Network. If you guys have made it this far on podcast form, please remember to go rate us five stars and hit that follow button. I have learned that if I ask people to go and subscribe, people like and subscribe. And then those people they talk to listen to us and they've got questions for me and I get to have these awesome conversations. So please guys go ahead and do that. We will see everyone next Wednesday until then we'll talk to everyone soon. Thank you. Thanks you guys. Bye-bye. Thank you. Benson.